All right, David, thank you so much for leading us in that time of singing and praise. And now, my dear brothers and sisters, I am excited to get into God's Word with you today. We're continuing our study of the book of Exodus. And so if you have your Bibles with you, please at this time open up to Exodus chapter 21. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 7 through 11. So Exodus chapter 21, verses 7 through 11. We'll read the passage as a whole. I'll pray over this morning's study and we'll get into our time of teaching. So Exodus 21, 7 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters." If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. This was God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning. We thank you and praise you for your word. We thank that you have spoken. We thank you that you have spoken all throughout history. You have used the apostles and prophets to speak into their time and place. And you have finally, in these last days, spoken to us supremely through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we receive these ancient words from the hand of Moses as the Word of God, and yet we also acknowledge that you have more fully revealed yourself through your Son. And so we just pray, Lord, that we would have open hearts and minds to hear what you are saying to us today through these words. We pray that we would be better equipped as disciples of Jesus Christ on how to be ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within us with meekness and fear. So help us to understand texts like these that may be very difficult and strange on the surface, but Lord, by faith, we believe you've got a message for your people today and you want to equip my brothers and sisters, so that they too can teach and do the work of the ministry. I ask this blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends. Well, it's many years ago now. I had the fantastic, fortunate opportunity of working at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. If you're not familiar with that church, it is a large church. Many thousands of people uh, attended church there, and it was under the ministry of the late, great Pastor Chuck Smith. And when I was working there, I had the opportunity to do many different things, and probably one of my favorite things I got to do was be a college campus minister. So what I got to do is I got to travel throughout different parts of Southern California, mostly Orange County, but outside as well. And I got to visit these different campuses and we would help start camp Christian campus clubs there and help work with other Christian organizations, uh, put on events and interact with non-believers of various kinds, whether atheists or agnostics or Muslims or what have you. And so I was at Orange Coast College, I was at Cal State Fullerton, I was at Cal State Long Beach, I was at UC Irvine, and we were even at Cypress College. So we had the opportunity to do ministry in those places. Now, one of the things I learned is what are the kinds of questions that are really on people's minds regarding Christianity. So when we're reaching out to people, we obviously want to be equipped. We want to be ready. You want to be ready. If you raise uh, the conversation about Jesus and about the Bible, you want to be ready to answer questions or even objections that people might raise. The Bible tells all of us, not just me as a pastor, but all of you as disciples, 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within you with meekness and fear. So we're all supposed to be ready. Now, what exactly are you supposed to be ready for, though? Well, I think that depends, and I think it changes depending on time and place. The kinds of things people are concerned about or, or upset about or they like or don't like, that obviously varies. Some things remain the same, but many things change over time. So in my mind, I remember I had been working on an apologetics degree, a master's degree in apologetics, 
uh, at an evangelical seminary, and I was really getting into Christian philosophy, and I, I really, I was learning about arguments um, for, for God, uh, addressing, you know, uh, theodicy, if, if God, why evil, uh, why is there something rather than nothing, um, you know, maybe even some science debate stuff, debating, you know, maybe Genesis and creation. Now, so that's, I was thinking that's primarily what I'm going to get asked. I'm going to get asked, you know, science questions, and I'm going to get asked, you know, big philosophical questions. Now, interestingly, while I did get asked that a little bit, that was primarily not what I was asked. Do you know what I was primi primarily asked about? The Bible. It was actually the Bible. No, the Bible itself. People are asking me, how can you believe this book if it teaches these things? So in other words, the main issue that came up in my experience, and I'm seeing it more and more in our culture, it's not about arguing uh, for the existence of God and arguing arguments for the existence of God and you know, uh, you know, creation. The main thing I saw was the moral commands of the Bible, and especially the moral commands of the Old Testament, like the one in front of us this morning. So it was actually on the basis of what the Bible itself taught about moral and legal civil issues that was very difficult to understand, if not downright offensive to many people out there. And so I think texts like the one in front of us this morning, even if we say to ourselves, well, Pastor Mike, uh, you know, I kind of, I'm, I'm busy, I'm stressed out, I just want a little encouragement, I just want to write down three little tips on what I should do this week, and, and I realize this legal code in, in Exodus maybe doesn't quite fit that, but what I do want to confirm for all of you this morning is this study will equip you to do the work of the ministry, and that is part of the point of Bible teaching. It's not just, oh, hey, give me something that I like or that I want, it's get you ready to do the work of the ministry. And let's make sure that we're all aware of that. You're all in the ministry at some level. Ephesians chapter 4 tells me my job as a pastor is equip you, all the saints, so you can do the work of the ministry. And so I think it's my job to kind of help you go through this text and figure it out. Because let's let's look at this text from a critical standpoint. Let's imagine you're, you know, secular, let's say agnostic. I think people are more epistemologically humble now so rather than atheist hardline they're more like agnostic well i just don't know and i don't think you really can know um, be that as it may let's let's take kind of a non-christian common perspective on this text and this is again this is not my take on it but this is how somebody might read this text follow along with me and if some regressive patriarchal man decides he can sell his daughter so he can uh, upgrade his porsche and his daughter to be a female slave, she's not allowed to go out like the male slaves. Because we all know last week we saw male slaves can just go out. But females, nope, because they're second-class citizens. Verse 8, if she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he's betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters, whatever in the world that is. If he takes another wife, oh, okay, you're allowed to have more than one wife. He shall not diminish her food or clothing or marriage rights. And if he does not do these for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. So she doesn't get paid any money. What in the world's going on here? So again, you can see how if somebody doesn't understand the Bible, doesn't understand the uh, the Old Testament context, um, has certain ideas and values, and, and, I, and I think we would even share some, some of these uh, values. Certainly, we don't uh, affirm slavery. We don't want to see it come back. We're not trying to enforce the Old Testament, Exodus, uh, covenant code on, on American society. We don't want to see that. I want to affirm that for anybody out there who's worried these Bible-teaching Christians are trying to enforce the Levitical code, and they want to bring back concubinage. And it's like, no, no, we really don't. I promise but nevertheless, it, it is God's word, so we do want to understand it. We want to understand it fairly, and we also want to come to a conclusion about how we New Testament Christians should view texts like these. Now, kind of to this point of the Bible becoming more and more of a strange book to people. And so, uh, like apologetics, the nature of apologetics, defending the faith, I think it's shifting a little bit. Not that some of those, you know, whether it's science or whether it's philosophy, I still think that has a place. And for some people, it may be the main thing, indeed. So don't get me wrong that 
uh, those don't have value. I think they do. But I'm just saying in, in my experience as a pastor, as a college campus minister, I've seen more and more apologetics is about knowing the Bible and how to interpret it rightly and explain it to people so that it makes sense because it's becoming more and more of a foreign idea. Now, I found a fantastic quote by a former Anglican archbishop by the name of Peter Jensen. Um, he was a, a theologian, PhD in systematic theology from Oxford uh, University, and he remarked upon this very idea, this kind of place that we're all in now, and I thought he said it so well, so it's a paragraph, but let me read this great quote to you that kind of explains where we are in our culture with regard to the Bible and what it says. Peter Jensen says, quote, the Bible is a strange book. And with every decade that passes, its strangeness becomes more apparent. It is virtually the sole survivor, in the Western world at least, of the books of antiquity. Caesar, Plato, and Augustine are still in print and read by many, but they have no audience even remotely comparable with the Bible. Its sayings and stories have entered the culture as no other book has. But biblical illiteracy is apparent. And where the Bible is read, its message is not always understood. It is as if we have been asked to host a visitor from another culture, where the possibilities for misunderstanding are high. Such a visitor poses a threat to our own way of doing things by showing us alternatives we may never have thought of. Equally, we may judge the stranger by the mores of our own society and find him lacking for all the wrong reasons. The human disciplines in whose name we question the integrity of the Bible do not have the last word. In many ways, the Bible has always been an outsider, challenging its own contemporary culture as it challenges ours. The opening chapters of Genesis fitted no more comfortably within ancient cosmogonies than with our own. The Bible's willingness to provide the human narrative from its origin to its destiny and to judge the meaning of it all in terms of good and evil has always threatens the evaluation of those who do not have such a lofty viewpoint. But strange though the Bible is, it is also perennial and profoundly human. The ancient wisdom of the Proverbs, the cries of the Psalms, and the stories of the former prophets speak recognizably to human experience to this day. Much of the church's present-day unease with the Bible is for all the wrong reasons, a tragic capitulation to worldliness. Like the cross, the scripture is a paradox of God's self-revelation, foolish to the cultured, but wise beyond all measure to those who are being saved, end quote. So again, Jensen highlights for us that as time goes on, we're in the 21st century, as uh, we, our technological age is developing uh, more and more. We're more and more distanced to the means of uh, production of food, and we're looking at landing on Mars and the internet and uh, different uh, more on civil values in society, it can make the Bible more and more difficult for many people to read. And so it's so important, not only that you get fed in a church service, but that you are fed and equipped to go and feed others, that you're able to explain it and unpack it for others. And I think, to be, to be honest with you, I got more questions this last week about that first section in Exodus 21 about slaves than I have about probably any of the last uh, one to two months worth of messages. So even believers who say, hey, uh, my, Pastor Mike, I love Jesus. I love the Bible. But man, this stuff's kind of weird about slavery. Can you, what about this particular thing? What about that? And so I really want to acknowledge, I think that's where a, a lot of us can be if we really stop to pause. So it's important that we really unpack these things. And so what I want to do, I want to walk you carefully through this passage because as I said, I think most people, including many Christians, actually don't know what's happening here in this text. And what I want to end up doing is give you four strategies for reading the Old Testament law. Four strategies for reading the Old Testament law. So let's dig into the text itself. Let's look at verse 7. And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. Um, now, one of the important things to remember is the nature of this law. So remember, we said there's two kinds of 
of laws. There's what they call apodictic law, and there's casuistic law. And let me unpack that in plain language. Apodictic law means universal law, okay? What we might call a principle. So apodictic law is something that is always applicable, and, it, and it's not just relative to time. Now, the apodictic law was the Ten Commandments, okay? So the Ten Commandments were these universal laws, these, these great principles, okay? Now, casuistic law means case law. So what it is, it's not universal and timeless. So this is case law that we're looking at this morning. It's not universally applicable, at least in a one-to-one -one sort of scenario. So we're not saying in order, hey, in order to make this true in the 21st century, we got to make slaves and then we got to sell them. And no, 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 it, it doesn't apply in the same sense that say the Ten Commandments do, which are apodictic laws. They are case laws. And what a case law is here in Exodus is sort of an extrapolation of various issues based on the Ten Commandments. So in other words, using the Ten Commandments, which are these universal principles, there are various case laws, examples given. Many times there's not a context. It doesn't tell you what's going on or why. It's not established. It doesn't talk about where did slavery come from and is it bad, is it wrong? It just doesn't even talk about that. It assumes it's already there because it was. We know that for a fact because at the very least in the Bible, Israel had already been slaves prior. So slavery existed in Egypt. Egypt, obviously, and as you study outside the Bible, you realize slavery was universal in the ancient Near East and Mesopotamia. It was all over, so it was already there. And the Bible is not so much dealing with that. It's just saying, if this is the case, here's how the Ten Commandments could be applied to that time-bound situation. And primarily, this would be helpful for e either civil magistrates, the elders of a town who would come and judge, or even it would work within the family system. And the family system in the ancient world was much different than it is now. We won't get into a lot of that today, um, but it was much, much bigger. An adult male like myself, if my father were still alive, I might still be living in his house and have to obey his rules, even though I'm a middle-aged man with children of my own. And and the, the patriarch of the family would actually... Uh, have to kind of follow up on these legal contracts and make sure they were followed. He would be step one. And then if there was still a problem, then you would go to the civil court. So it was just, it was a different world all across the board in many ways, socially speaking. We wouldn't say so much anthropologically. Human nature fundamentally remains the same across time. But the way in which human beings uh, live out that, that nature can be on the surface very, very different as we clearly see here. So I just want to point out, this is, this is a case law. So it doesn't tell you uh, a lot of the things that, that we would want to know or we would need supplied to us. For example, when it says verse 7, and if a man sells his daughter, now the modern reader immediately says, now why in the world would you do that? What's wrong with you? What horrible, awful dad would just sell his daughter? Okay, and that's actually a reasonable question. It really is. It's a reasonable question. As Christians, we don't want to be like, oh, you're not allowed to ask that question because that's hard and that might confuse us. No, that's a legitimate question and we're allowed to ask that. It's simply the fact that the Bible did not provide that information. But let me just give you some potential offerings that I think would be helpful. Now, why would a man at that time do that? Uh, for one, it could even be a, a positive thing in that if a family was so poor that their daughter was going to starve to death, it would be preferable for him to make an arrangement, and we'll see, this isn't uh, as cold and brutal as it sounds, that the selling just, you know, with no rights, surrender, like property, no, it's, it's much different, it's much uh, I would say it's much better than that kind of scenario, but that's that's a possibility of how that would work. And by the way, it's possible that that is also a means of social mobility, um, that if they were able to secure a good marriage for their daughter, they would actually be improving her chances in life and they, she could end up with a better life than she would have had at home. Again, so there's possibilities um, that might even be what we would consider to be positive given the very, very harsh circumstances of the ancient world. So verse 7 says, And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave. Now, that word female slave is a technical word. It is the Hebrew word, ama. 
Now, there are a couple other words that could have been chosen, and they tell us the status. They, they indicate what's going on here. Um, so normally, if it was a, a, a wife, if it were a wife, it would be Isha, but it's not Isha, it's Amma. So an Amma is not quite the, the status of Isha or wife. However, it's higher than the other word with it could be, which is Shifcha. Shifcha is uh, simply a slave with no particular uh, marital type rights. So the word Amma is important because it's probably what we would refer to now as a concubine. So it's not a, a wife with the highest level of rights, but she is an Amma, she's a concubine, which has, she has legal rights, legal protections. So that that's an important thing to note. So this is not just, oh, hey, seller, give me my 20 bucks and I don't care what happens. No, what's happening here is the man, the father that's selling his daughter is securing a contract. There's actually a contract that says, hey, for whatever reason, probably, you know, misfortune, bad situations, she's going to enter into this arrangement and I have a contract and I'm going to hold you to it because I'm going to make sure that she is treated properly. So she is an Amma. That's an important thing to notice. And again, if you read verse 7, it just sounds like it's any old slave, but not only does the Hebrew word Amma make that clear, which you wouldn't know in English, but as you read on, say, for example, in verse 8, you see the word betrothed in English. So obviously this is not just a slave. This is talking about somebody who is in a marriage type relationship. But let's move on in verse 7. And then it says, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. Now that sounds bad to the modern reader. What? I just read in verses one through six, it says the male after six years can just go out, but the female, because she's a female, she's not allowed to go. What in the world? That sounds wrong. Now here is the great irony and the importance of context. Not only is it not bad that she shall not go out as the male slaves do, it is good why? Because she is a wife. She is a concubine. She has legal rights. So if the the master, the man, just gets rid of her, he's actually being negligent on his duties, on his rights. And that puts her, the ama, the female slave, in a very bad position. So again, to the modern reader, she shall not go out as a male slave. Oh, that's horrible. It's oppressive of women. Actually, it is the exact opposite. It is securing the rights of the female in question. It is making sure that the man does not renege on his obligations. So verse 8, if she does not please her master who has betrothed her, again, the English here makes it clear we don't have just a, a slave situation, who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. Um, so again, if she does not please her master, so if there is a problem, doesn't specify uh, what it is, uh, most likely it would be something rather serious. If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself. So again, this is a marriage situation. That's why she will just not go out. This is a marriage. There's obligations. Then he shall let her be redeemed. Now there's a couple different Hebrew words that could be translated redeemed. And the particular word here, I think, is important. It's the Hebrew word pada. Now, pada doesn't mean to restore to a, a good position, but specifically to redeem from a dire situation. In other words, even if the modern person doesn't understand how exactly this works, if the female servant here, the concubine, is just sent out. She is in a dire predicament. In other words, she has nowhere to go. She has no means to live. It's not like, uh, uh, you know, in the modern world, hey, there's a good job, good chance I can just go get a job and they'll hire me and they're not going to be like, oh, hey, we don't hire women at this job or whatever. No, you can just go do it. That's not how it was there. And there were very limited opportunities, actually, for many people other than this form. And if she's still married to one man, no one else is going to marry her. So she's she's in limbo. She can't go back to her father's house. It hasn't been legally 
obtained, nor can she be married anywhere else. So it actually puts her in a place, and the, the language, pada, can actually be uh, redeemed from destruction, uh, redeemed from a dire situation. So again, he shall let her be redeemed from a very bad situation. So what you're seeing already is that this law, rather than treating females bad, is actually protecting them. Again, this is not to say that the systems in place are the best systems or that we would prefer them or, or that they're commanded in the New Testament, but it is to say, given the situation, given the world is not the way it should be, bad things are happening, and this is not an apodictic law, it's not a universal law, it's simply the extrapolation in that time, in that place of the universal principles, and this is what it looks like there. You see it's securing the right of the woman. Notice it follows up. So it's securing her rights. She has the right to be redeemed. She she is not just to be thrown out in the street, in other words. And look at what it says, second half of verse 8. He shall have no right. Look at this. This legal contract is not only securing the rights of the woman, it is making clear what the man has no right to do. So again, this is actually for the woman. And I'm very uh, conscientious of the fact that many people uh, today, and for good reason, when they read a text like this, they're very concerned for the safety and well-being of women. They go, oh, this looks patriarchal and aggressive, and it's just trying to put women in this low place. Friends, again, in context, no. If you are thinking about a modern context, yes, I can understand why you feel that way. But in this context, no. It couldn't be more the opposite. It is securing the safety and well-being of the woman in question. This man will have no right to sell her. So if for some reason he he just he hates her, right? He, he's like, oh, you drive me nuts. You're just you're annoying, whatever. And he's like, I'm just going to sell you to a foreign people. I want to get you out of here. I don't even want to have to see you again. The, the law here says you're not allowed to do that. You can't treat her that way. It is wrong to send her away to some strange land. Uh, even if, let's say, they offered you a lot of money, doesn't matter. You're not allowed. So it's securing her rights. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. Again, this is marriage type language. And you actually see it used in Jeremiah 3.20 of God in Israel. In that scenario, Yahweh is the husband and Israel is the wife. And it says, and you have dealt deceitfully with me. So it's language that can be used of a relationship. So again, it is condemning the man's behavior. If the man tries to do this, if the man just tries to get rid of, of his concubine, which again is, is a legal, kind of a secondary wife. So there's legal status. If he just tries to get rid of her, he's not allowed to do that. That would be to deal deceitfully. That would be unfaithful. You could fit this at least partly under the category of the Ten Commandments of not bearing false witness. When you enter into a legal contract like this and you say, I will, I will do this, then you are bound by that. You are bound by that obligation. So that's one of the ways in which the Ten Commandments would fit this. If you agree to this, your yes, it needs to be yes. You can't just be breaking it off because you don't like it or you feel like something works out better for you. So again, protecting the woman from being dealt with deceitfully. Verse 9. Now, there's another scenario that could happen. So the the, the man who, who uh, uh, oh, by the way, I forgot to say this. So part of what's happening here with, with the money, and again, I know the language sounds harsh, the selling, uh, some people say it, it could be trans. Trans, or translated as transfer uh, ra rather than sell. Um, it's normally sell, but it could be transfer. Part of the reason for that is what's probably being talked about here is what they call the bride price. Again, so um, it sounds cold and, and awful that a man sells his daughter, but actually the idea is that the, the man buying the girl, it's actually giving her the bride price, which is money for the bride and her family, so that if something goes bad in her marriage, she has that money. So it's securing her financially. Um, again, now, could the, the father of the bride be a dirty guy? 
and use up his daughter's money? Well, that would be morally, ethically wrong, but it did happen with Laban, if you remember that, Rachel and Leah, when they're fleeing uh, with Jacob, and they stole their father's idols, if you remember that story. Uh, if you don't, you should go back and read it in this light. And one of the reasons Rachel says she did it is because she's angry because the bride price that went to her father, he just spent up because Laban was just a, a dirty businessman, just totally dirty, underhanded, always looking for an advantage for himself, used up his daughter's own money. Now that shouldn't happen because that, that money, that bride price is there for them to secure their future. So just to rem uh, mention that. But verse 9 mentions another scenario. So it may be the man that pays the bride price. He's, he, it's not because he wants the, the woman for, her, for himself, but rather for his son. So that is a possibility. And listen to this. Once again, securing more rights for the woman. And if he is betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. So again, that word slave, it, it sounds so cold and awful, and there's um, there's reason for that. Because for us, as modern people, I think, and I know I do this, even somebody who studies the scriptures and studies it in context and in academic settings, and yet still, the memory of African-American slavery, the Euro-American slave trade in more recent history, and, and the particularly barbaric, brutal treatment of Africans um, is, is etched into my mind. So it's hard to not just shove that picture of that more modern experience into this text, but but that's not the situation. It's not. We kind of have to is is you know as bad as the American experience was. What we have to do is set it aside, deal with it on you know contemporary issues. But then when we want to understand the Bible, what we need to do is go back to the context of the Bible and understand what slavery looked like then. It's a legitimate question to say, well, is it the same as uh, what happened to uh, the Africans in, in Europe and America and the Caribbean, South America, uh, or, or is it different? And I think a lot of people don't know to ask that question. They just assume, oh, it's the same. It's exactly the same, and therefore the Bible's supporting that. No, it's not. Uh, not at all. Again, everyone practiced some form uh, of slavery or indentured servitude, and there, and there was different degrees and different ways, and there was all kinds of laws and rights, so it was not it, at all. I mean, it actually, in a sense, if we're able to set the African-American slavery tragedy aside for a moment, to understand the Bible and it's talking about slavery in its context, you know what happens? Not only do we understand the Bible, and it, and it, I think it is much less harsh than it sounds like, but it actually highlights even more, more how bad the treatment of Africans was in the American slavery experience. It actually, because you realize in the history of slavery, that was actually way worse than anything we're talking about today. So again, it, it doesn't diminish, because I know that some people's a valid concern is, oh gosh, if you're saying set it aside, are you saying it's not? No, no, no. I'm saying you'll, you'll actually won't see how bad the more recent version of slavery in America was, and you won't understand how slavery was not nearly that bad, and there were, there were legal rights and all kinds of laws in the, in the ancient world in Israel. So it's very important to do this. But notice this. The slave is treated as a daughter. She lives there. She's married. She's They're related. They're in-laws. Uh, they're they're in-laws. Again, there's a secondary status, which we don't have that category in modern society. So there's nothing we can go, oh, I know what that means. But it, effectively, it is a wife, okay? A, a wife with uh, less uh, inheritance rights, though there is some, than, than Anisha, than a, a, a primary wife. So she will be treated as a daughter. Again, this is securing the right. This is not only just don't treat her bad, but she's a part of the family. She is a part of the family. As a matter of fact, you'd even see as you read the Bible and pay attention to this, especially in Genesis, uh, like Eleazar of Damascus, Abraham's servant, he's, he's a member of the family. And Abraham even says, if, if I don't have a child with Sarah, then, my, then Eleazar, my slave, is actually going to be my heir. So it shows that a slave could be a member of the family. And, and I think we have to open up our minds to be able to understand that because it makes it the reading of the Bible different. So if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. Verse 10, if he takes another wife, and again, it actually just says another, um, so another of the same kind. So concubine, the English text says wife, fair enough. It, it helps communicate the legal 
side of things. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food or clothing and her marriage rights. Now, that word for food is interesting because it's not the normal word for food, which is lechem. You probably know lechem because of the word Bethlehem, uh, Beit lechem. It means house of bread. Um, but lechem was, uh, it can mean bread and it was just generic for probably any grain-based thing. Uh, and by the way, if you're fascinated, what kind of diet did the ancient Israelites have? I did some uh, research on this and I can tell you that it was basically what we call the Mediterranean triad diet. So the Mediterranean triad diet, which was grapes, olives, and grain. Grapes, olives, and grain. About 53 to 75% of the ancient Israelite diet was grain. It was grain-based, wheat or barley or something like that. Uh, olive oil used for making all kinds of foods made up about 11%. And I'm telling you all this because what you read is meat was very, very rare. Meat would probably only be tasted on special occasions, religious feasts and holidays, and perhaps those who were extremely wealthy. But meat was a delicacy. So it is interesting that the word here is not lechem. It's not just keep her, keep her alive barely. No, it's the word for meat, which uh, some scholars point out. It's actually saying, if he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her luxuries. So in other words, her standard of living, it's not just, hey, give her a cup of water and a loaf of bread and, you know, like prison food. No, it may actually be saying, keep her standard of living high, similar to a wife. The, the luxuries, what she's used to, you will not take that away. It's not just the bare minimum. That's maybe an important point to make. Her clothing and her marriage rights, notice that. Now, the marriage rights, what were those? There's some debate about this. Some say it just refers to uh, living quarters. He will provide a place for her to live. Uh, I think that's definitely at least true. But some also point to conjugal rights, that she has the right to uh, sexual relations. Now, again, we might think, well, why would she want that? Well, again, securing children uh, was, was very, very valuable and important in the ancient world uh, to women. As a matter of fact, in some cases, it was... Uh, like idolatrous to the to the point where it's like you know uh sarah says abram give me children lest i die you know and abram's like what do you want me to do you know, i'm not god i can't just make babies happen well i mean i can but i can't so uh, again it's um protecting look at all of this protecting all these marriage concubinage rights legal status keeping her standard of living providing for her treating her like a daughter he can't just get rid of her he owes her what he has promised that the father has secured in this very carefully written contract and to be followed and enforced by both the family uh, law system and the civil system as well lastly verse 11 and if he does not, because that's possible, and if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. Now, again, a modern person hears, without paying, you mean he's, he's not going to even pay her any money? Like, what's going on? Actually, it's the opposite. She does not have to pay him anything. So it's actually the reverse. Once again, it's blessing the woman. So the bride price, remember that? The bride price that went to the bride's family, they do not owe that back. The guy doesn't get a refund on the, the bride price that he paid. So not paying money is a good thing for the woman. She just gets to go out free and she does not owe him. The family does not owe him anything. So I think what you can see here is that there is a big difference between the way many people, including Christians, but especially non-Christians, would read this text, would be deeply offended on the basis of deep moral offense that seemingly is, is putting women in a terrible place. They therefore say of the rest of the Bible, it is an immoral book. I judge it so by my modern standards, and therefore the God of the Bible and the Jesus whom it speaks of, I do not want, I cannot submit to or surrender to. So I think what understanding in its conduct does, it, it helps us to say, no, there is a compassionate, loving God, and he gives his word in a universal sense, the Ten Commandments, but also in a time-bound sense. And these laws are not binding on New Testament Christians today. They were temporary laws to help restrain evil and to secure the good of people within that ancient system. 
okay so its application could vary and as a matter of fact by the way if you pay close attention as you read through the Torah you're even gonna see as things go into Leviticus numbers and especially Deuteronomy you're gonna see similar laws but they're but they're also different they've developed and that's partly because circumstances have changed and so the the law of God the apodictic law hasn't changed doesn't change but the application of it you actually even see in the Bible does so I hope that you can see, friends, that there's there's some work that we need to do. We need to study to shew ourselves approved unto God, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We got to do the hard work. It's not always easy and just warm, fuzzy feelings in the morning with my coffee. Sometimes we have to sit down and do the hard work of biblical interpretation. But in the end, I think it is far worth it, not only for ourselves, but for the good of the world out there who increasingly see the Bible, not only as a strange book, but it is a morally offensive book. And I believe it is our job, it is your job, to help people to see the beauty and truth of God's Word. Now let me just close with four strategies for reading Old Testament law. Four basic strategies for reading Old Testament law. Number one, reading, read the Bible according to its context. And if you're taking notes, capitalize its, I-T-S. Read the Bible according to its context. You have to deliberately sometimes, again, in the morning with your coffee, you're running out the door to the freeway to get to work. You're probably not going to read the Bible at that level. There's different modes of interpretation, different levels of interpretation. Um, men, application is a form of interpretation, by the way. And I think when we talk about devotional reading of scripture, what we mean is application. So you're just, you're reading, hey, I got to go to the office. I got these cases in front of me. I got this um, call I got to make. I got this meeting. And when you're reading the Bible, you're kind of like, Lord, help, help me to live faithfully for you. And that, that's a wonderful question. It's valid. And you, I believe you must do that. You have to ask application. But there's also times in which we need to do the hard work of interpretation of the Bible in its setting. And that's actually the primary mode of interpretation. Because whatever applications, and they can vary to times and places, they will never contradict the original meaning of the text. It's time and it's place. So it's important that we figure that out. So number one, read the Bible according to its context. Make sure you're not just transposing modern understandings and experiences and culture and even language onto the Bible. We want to try as best we can to understand the Bible in its context. Now, for many of you, again, you're like, well, hey, Pastor Mike, I haven't gone to school for this. I haven't, I haven't, you know, I haven't studied in, in seminary and, and all that stuff. How can I do it? Well, this is where commentaries are a wonderful resource for you. I, I think you should all, if you're going to do serious study of any of the book of the Bible, get some good commentaries. I'd be happy to recommend some for you. But let me give you a resource to help you find good commentaries. And that resource is this. It's called Commentary and Reference Survey by John Glynn. Commentary and Reference Survey by John Glynn. You know what's awesome about this? He's going to recommend commentaries for every book of the Bible. And for you conscientious students out there, and I hope you all are, um, you might want to know, well, is this going to be more for application? Is this going to be critical, technical? Is it going to be evangelical or is it going to be liberal? He lets you know all of that here let me give you examples he's gonna let you know if it's evangelical and technical or semi-technical he's gonna let you know if it's mixed technical or semi-technical he's gonna let you know if it's liberal technical he's gonna let you know if it's exposition he's gonna let you know if it's preaching and application so this is a wonderful resource it would be worth buying so that if you want to do serious study of the Bible in its context you can know what you're getting into so again highly recommend that commentary reference and survey by John Glenn G-L-Y-N-N number two identify similarities and dissimilarities between Israel and its neighbors. So identify similarities and dissimilarities between Israel and its neighbors. So this is sort of a, this is a direct follow-up from number one. So assuming you're, you're not just importing the modern experience onto the Bible, you're looking at Israel and you're studying it in its context. Now what you want to do when you're looking at, you know, what were the Canaanites doing? What were the Egyptians doing? You know, the Hittites, whoever it might be. And you're looking, so you're, you're comparing 
And what you want to note is there's going to be things that are similar, okay? There, there are, and I don't think that's to be surprising. There's lots of things as Christians that we do similarly to non-Christians, right? We, do we all drive cars? Do we, you know, fly in planes? Do we use computers? Do we like burgers? You know I'm saying? There's lots of cultural things we have in common. So you're going to see that, actually, and that's quite interesting. But you're also going to see dissimilarities, and, and so that's going to help you kind of figure out what is being highlighted here. How, how was Israel the same and how was Israel different? And let me give you kind of a big clue in this regard. One of the ways, if you start reading ancient Near Eastern texts, what you'll find out is Israel, when it comes to case law, like the one in front of us, there's a lot of similarity. There's differences, but there's a lot of similarity. Where Israel is utterly dissimilar, where they are set apart, is not in these various case laws, if there's an ox, if, if, if a man sells a servant, it's actually the Ten Commandments, the apodictic laws, universal print. These other law codes don't have those, and they don't come from the gods. They're more secular. It's just about the king, and this is how it's going to be. But that's really what sets Israel apart, is the why. The why we do what we do. So the attention is really drawn in Christianity, not just to the outworking, which naturally matters, but the why. The why is God, who God is, God redeeming us, and God giving us universal principles through which we live and apply our lives to new and changing situations. So identify similarities and dissimilarities between Israel and other uh, ancient Near Eastern neighbors. Number three. Recognize the difference between timeless principles and time-bound application. Let me say that again. Number three, recognize the difference between timeless principles, they're good forever, and time-bound applications, such as the one in front of us. It's, it's, the application is time-bound, but what's underneath? What's going on? What seems to be God's heart? And again, his heart is he's securing the rights of women in a world that was very, very harsh towards women. So it's securing that. It's securing the honesty of legal contracts, business contracts. Uh, it's securing marriage and, and the way that it's meant to be lived out and, and to be honored. And that there's, there's duties and obligations. Marriage isn't about just how you feel. It is about duties to God and to your spouse. Um, by the way, just in case someone feels uncomfortable with this idea that I'm saying um, these, you know, like this case law is time bound uh, and, and doesn't always apply, um, Jesus actually said this. And so that's important to point out. In Matthew chapter 19, particularly verse 8, Jesus says this. So later on in Deuteronomy, Moses gives a law about divorce. When Jesus is asked about divorce, what does he say? He said, Moses permitted Another translation says condescended. Moses permitted for you to get a divorce, but from the beginning this was not so. What Jesus is saying is the, the law, the case law, recognizes, look, things are not as they should be. They're, they're all messed up, but we're going to try to make it better. It's not going to make it perfect, but we're going to try to limit bad things. We're going to try to make it better. It's not saying this is the way it ought to be. It's going to say, hey, this is the way it is. We're going to try to make it better. Jesus goes back to the universal principle, the ideal of one man, one woman in marriage for life. That's the principle. So Jesus recognizes that a lot of these case laws were time-bound condescensions that were, that were not the same as the universal principle. And lastly, number four, and this is so important, interpret the Old Testament in light of Jesus and the New Testament interpret the Old Testament in light of Jesus in the New Testament. So when we read Exodus 21, 7 through 11, and we're doing all this work, but at the end of the day, we have to remember Jesus and what he is doing and what the New Testament does. And it does a number of things. So read Matthew 19 uh, to, to look at uh, how marriage is talked about there and God's ideal, the universal principle behind marriage. 1 Corinthians 7, it seems to picture monogamy there, a husband and wife, and, and, and it's equal. There's an equality in 1 Corinthians 7. The husband uh, owns the wife and the wife owns the husband equal. They belong to one another. They don't belong to themselves. A beautiful picture of monogamy and equality, uh, something that uh, modern people might appreciate. And 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 say, um, are beginning to rule out, again, this ancient practice of polygamy. No pastor who has more than one wife is allowed to be a pastor. You, you can't do it. It might exist. We recognize that, but it is not the ideal, and, and, a, and the pastor absolutely cannot have more than one wife. So always interpret the old in light of Jesus and the New Testament. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you that it is a light unto our feet, a lamp unto our path. Lord, I just pray not only that we would be fed, that we would be excited and passionate and diligent in studying your word to, to be approved unto God, rightly dividing your word, rightly interpreting it and handling it. And Lord, help us to help others as your word is becoming stranger to people and even offensive to people. Lord, help us to be winsome advocates of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And let us point to the Bible as being a reliable guide to who you are and how you've worked throughout history. I ask for a blessing now over my brothers and sisters in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, before we go, just a few announcements. So first of all, for those who would like to give financially as a part of your worship, you can do so in two ways. You can go online to our website, which is imagechurchoc.com, and there's a giving tab up at the top, and you can click there and give using a credit or debit card. If you prefer, you can mail in a check or, or money order to our church mailing address, which is 27762 Antonio Parkway. L is in Larry 514, and that's Ladera Ranch, California, 92694. All that's on our website, imagechurchoc.com. Uh, by the way, donation letters from the church for the year 2020 are going out. So make sure if you've moved, you, do, you have a different mailing address. If you moved this last year, send us an email to our church office and let us know your new address. So uh, send that email to information at imagechurchoc.com. Let us know where you would like your donation letter sent. Thank all of you for continuing your faithfulness and your giving through this last year, which was just crazy in so many ways. If any of you have Bible study questions about today's study, if you have uh, prayer needs, email us using the same e email at information at imagechurchoc.com. Don't forget to join us Wednesday night as we continue to go through the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to have some community groups starting up. I know we have one uh, meeting tomorrow, so make sure if you're interested, uh, let us know. Um, by sending an email to information at imagechurchoc.com. And again, we're going to require RSVPs. We want everyone to make sure we, we know who's coming. We can let people know uh, what the situation is, what it's going on, what's the arrangement, are we meaning outdoor, indoor, all that kind of stuff that that I think is good uh, for us to do for, for many reasons, and especially in this uh, strange COVID season. So uh, we do want to ask that everybody RSVP if they're interested in doing that. But again, friends, would you just continue to pray with us? Would you continue to get this word of God out to as many people as you can? Jesus is coming soon. And let's make sure that when he comes, he finds us diligent and sowing the seed of the word as he told us to do. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful and blessed week.